Hi, it's Jill Schlesinger, host of the Better Off Podcast. On today's episode, we're celebrating the 10-year anniversary of the financial crisis. In the SNL crisis of the late 80s, early 90s, there were hundreds of people went to jail for a much smaller problem that did not have an impact of the size of this crisis. So it can be done, it was done, and it sent a message to people. This time around, nobody went to jail of any high level, and the message is clear. Do it again next time and do it in bigger size. Welcome to the Better Off Podcast. We are sponsored by Betterment, the largest independent online financial advisor. Where were you 10 years ago this month? Think about it. All of a sudden, it seemed as if the United States economy was going to lead the rest of the world off a cliff and go into what could have been a multi-year, maybe a multi-decade depression. September 15th, Lehman Brothers declared bankruptcy. Now, while that is not the official beginning of the financial crisis, it probably started a year before that, it is what was the accelerant to the crisis. And so for the next few weeks, we are going to talk to different experts about the financial crisis and its aftermath. Today, we are so fortunate to have Gretchen Morganson. She's a senior special writer in the investigations unit at The Wall Street Journal. She has won a Pulitzer Prize. She's also won three Gerald Loeb Awards. And she wrote a book after the financial crisis with a co-author called Reckless Endangerment. And so we thought it would make sense to bring her on the program to talk to us about some of the issues you may have totally forgotten about. Here we go. It's the beginning of the 10-year anniversary celebration of the financial crisis. And yes, it should be celebrated because we do not want to forget what happened. We don't want to ever go through this again. So here is our interview with Gretchen Morganson. You're listening to Better Off with Jill Schlesinger. Gretchen Morganson, a bit of a star in my eyes. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being here. I am thrilled to be here, Jill. And star, I am not. You I are. just interpret the material. I all. love it. So for those of you who are not familiar with Gretchen's work, she uh, has a storied career as a journalist uh, working for various publications, currently for the Wall Street Journal, and was also the author of one of the seminal books recounting the financial crisis called Reckless Endangerment. How Outsized Ambition, Greed, and corpor- Corruption Led to Economic Armageddon. And it sure did feel like Armageddon. So, Gretchen, before we start the show, we love to begin with a simple question. What is the best money or career decision you've made so far? Work hard. That's it? That is so boring. Talk That's about awesome. boring. Very, uh, very puritanical also. But, you know, it's true. Uh, you know, I had a young journalist um, meet with me yesterday at the Wall Street Journal, and she said, tell me the secret of your success, which makes me laugh, of course. Yeah. And I really just, I was trying to think of some really brilliant, unusual thing to say, and I couldn't. And, you know, what really it is is just showing up. It is working hard. Because guess what? There are people who are not going to work as hard as you, and that's going to separate you from the rest of people. That's excellent. I, um, I, uh, Someone asked me something similar recently. Like, how did you get this thing? I'm like, you know, I didn't plan it out. It feels to me like everyone's planning a lot 
trying to mm-hmm. navigate their careers, right. like the minutiae, d- take advantage of opportunities mm-hmm. when they arise mm-hmm. and work really hard. Yeah. That seems good. Yeah. Being smart is not bad either. Being no. smart can be a, very helpful, but working hard can make up for a lack of that. I would say the hard work part is is more crucial. Um, obviously, together, those two are a pretty formidable duo, but I think hard work really will get people where they want to go. All right, let's go into a little bit of a flashback. Tell us what was going on for you more than 10 years ago, um, what you were covering, because you, you had a column in the New York Times. So what were you covering at the sort of in the 2006-7 era? What was going on for you? Well, we were covering, of course, the real estate bubble. We were watching that. Um, what I was really interested in was the behind-the-scenes stuff that was going on, the stuff that you really couldn't see on the surface. And this was really the introduction that I gave to the New York Times readers of derivatives and the roles that they would play. Now, derivatives are called derivatives because what they are, they are instruments, securities that are derived, their value is derived from some other underlying security like a stock has an option that is derived from it. So whatever the stock does, the option will move similarly, okay? So the derivatives were hidden from view. These were derivatives that were um, based on the housing market, based on residential mortgages, and they were derivatives that essentially leveraged or or expanded the market for home mortgages. So when you had, let's say, a million-dollar mortgage, there were derivatives that could really make that into $2 million, $3 million position. So it was a way for people to gamble. It was a way for people to increase their exposure to this market. And it really was not well understood. And so I started hearing about, you know, you should really look at these collateralized debt obligations, which were pools of mortgages that had been put together into one entity and sliced up based on risk, um, based on how risky the borrower was, based on the property value. And so people were saying, you know, you really ought to look at this because this is really amplifying the bubble. So the thing that's interesting about derivatives is that I always feel like they got a bad rap after the financial crisis because the idea of a derivative began as a way to mitigate risk a million years ago when I got into the business. Like, hey, we're using options, calls and puts. We're using this as a way to say, I've got a position. I want to protect myself if something really bad or unexpected were to occur. But what happened was everybody was all in on this notion that real estate prices never go down. And what's fascinating about that as the central premise for this is that what we were meant to believe was that this was based on hardcore data. And because there had never been a massive slide in real estate values for 40 or 50 years since the Depression, presumably, uh, then we could now extrapolate that experience forward as if it could never happen again. Correct. And so that was our black swan event. So when you were covering this, what was the part that that was shocking to you in real time? What did you find sort of like, wow, like, so, I mean, mortgage-backed securities have been around for a while. So what was it? Was it the the risk level, the amplification, the fact that it was hidden from sight? What part of it was like, holy smokes, this is what's going on? 
Well, I think it was a lot. It was several different things. First of all, it was the idea that you would give a mortgage to a person who maybe didn't even have a pulse. Okay. And anything goes lending. And so what became very clear was that because the, um, you know, idea of pooling these mortgages together, um, it was an assembly line, essentially, uh, a Wall Street assembly line. So they would take the mortgages that were, you know, underwritten by a bank or by a um, countrywide financial, which was a not a bank, it was a lender. They would take them, pool them, they would cut them up, they would sell them to their clients. So all along the way there, there was no um, sort of policing mechanism. It was all about getting the fee to do the next step in the process. And so there was there was sort of no um, mechanism for somebody asking the question, should we really make this mortgage? Because there was so much money at stake to make the mortgage, to sell the mortgage, and then for Wall Street to sell that pool of mortgages to investors who were really eager for yield, that there was no check and balance along the way. So it was an assembly line where there were people that didn't have any skin in the game. They did not have any... Um, you know, real duty or obligation to say, wait a minute, should we be making this mortgage? Should this mortgage actually go into this pool? Is it really safe or is it too risky? And is what we are advertising as safe, really safe? And I feel like at that moment, that was when they all said, well, there are these companies that do ratings and (laughs) they say that they're safe. So, you know, mm-hmm. uh, Bank of Luxembourg, you now can buy this because Moody's AAA. or AAA and it's stamped on there. So what was the credit agency part of that? Huge, huge. You put your finger right on it. So there was supposed to be a policing mechanism called the credit rating agencies who were supposed to go into each pool and analyze the mortgages and say, you know, this has this risk level. Risk of default is essentially what they're looking at, risk of nonpayment. And so the credit rating agencies were just slapping triple A's all over these securities that really had no business being anything like a triple A. And so everyone had a comfort level because traditionally the credit rating agencies had been pretty careful um, analyzing corporate debt. That was their main thing, or sovereign wealth debt, sovereign debt. So all of a sudden, they're rubber stamping these securities that are very complex that carry thousands of mortgages, and they weren't really looking at the loans, loan by loan. Is it your understanding that the reason that that happened was that the credit rating agencies were either trying to win the business of the bank or the organization on the other side of the house, like, hey, we want to hire you? Or was it just they blew it, like they were lazy and the money was too good and it was easier to slap a triple A than to do the work and say, actually, it's triple B and now your Chinese investor has to get more money for it, has to get a better interest rate? You know, it's probably a combination of the two, but I think that um, they had a duty to their customers to, you know, be able to rate these things properly and they did not. So I would say that it was... Um, it wasn't an accident. They weren't doing the work necessary to really understand them. Their models were completely flawed. And they have, too, bought into the idea that real estate prices never go down. So it was, um, you know, sins of omission and commission, definitely. When you were starting to cover this, what year was that? When you started to sort of get like that, this came up on your radar screens. 2006. Six. Mm-hmm. And so you're writing about it in six. You're writing about it in seven. Mm-hmm. And so when the crisis hit, 
And everyone said, nobody predicted this. You were writing about it. And by the way, the Wall Street Journal was also writing about it. There were people who were writing about it. Why do you think it did not get as much widespread coverage outside of the business press? I think a lot of people were very involved in the real estate bubble. They, you know, the cocktail party chatter, what did I sell my house for? Oh, my gosh, I'm flipping houses now for a living, you know, on the side. It was a very kind of um, alluring thing. I think um, human nature doesn't change. And the idea that this was easy money was very compelling for people. And, you know, the American dream of home ownership was important here, too. Very, you know, culturally important. So it was... uh, it was not even just like a tech bubble. It was it was so much more comprehensive and, you know, sort of culturally driven than uh, technology investing. So. Because you covered both the tech bubble and the housing bubble. Right. And mm-hmm. so comparing those two experiences, how was that different for you covering? What was the what was the feedback you would get when you'd write a column? about the tech bubble versus the housing bubble? Well, the tech bubble was um, a lot more easily measured because you're looking at stocks and you're looking at where they're priced compared to what the company is earning. There were a lot of companies that weren't earning anything in the tech bubble. They were more like dreams or hypotheses than they were real companies. So that was an easier assessment to make. Um, the mortgage crisis was, again, you know, uh, harder to see because you, you didn't, there wasn't a direct Jones industrial average for the mortgage market. So you couldn't see its fluctuations as easily. So it was just a little bit more um, difficult to dig into, but way huger, obviously, than the tech bubble. Enormous amounts of money involved. When you would write an article about, hey, the housing market's going bananas and there are these weird instruments, would you get pushback? Would you would people write in and say, like, you know, you don't know what you're talking about. Housing's great. Everything's fine. I mean, sometimes, sometimes, you know, so I started to really recognize that the um, foundation was shaky in 2007. And that's when the commercial paper market froze. It was the summer of 2007. And so that's you start to see the foundation shaking. How how do you see this in retrospect? You know, it was it felt like a U.S. crisis, but it was happening internationally. So what was your understanding at the time of either how the European banks were playing in this or how the Asian influence of, hey, interest rates are so low, we have all these dollars, we need to buy U.S. dollar denominated Mm -hmm. assets. What was your understanding at that time? And what's your understanding today of like the international piece of this? Well, it was truly an international problem. And we had exported our garbage, our mortgage garbage all around the world. So the 2007 summer moment where things start to freeze up, it really started in the UK. So um, there was a bank failure in the UK. And so you you could see that was a canary in the coal mine. Um, and, you know, we had really done a disservice to these banks mm. around the world. Or by, they had messed up by well, not looking yeah, themselves, yeah. I mean, right? Both. There's enough blame right? to go around. But anyway, so we were selling this stuff to them and right. they were buying it by the truckload. So, you know, yes, there was an enormous amount of pain, particularly German banks. Um, you know, uh, Iceland, of course, the entire banking world went bankrupt in Iceland. So, you know, it was a, it was an international problem. When you recount a lot of the stories in the book, you start with the government-sponsored entities yep. of Fannie and mm-hmm, Freddie. Mm-hmm. So can you explain a little bit about how that becomes the the germ of this contagion? 
Well, Fannie and Freddie for many, many, many years. Fannie was created, you know, what, in the 30s um, to help kind of ease the pain of the Depression and help home ownership, help people borrow money to buy a home. And they had operated very, very kind of conservatively and well for decades. But they, too, got ramped up and, and whipped up into the frenzy over reaching for mortgages. So when home ownership reached a certain level, 67% or something like that, it became, uh, you know, there was a drive in the United States to increase the level of home ownership. But what was not realized or, or what people want, didn't want to realize was that that would mean going down the risk or up the risk level, down the credit level. So you would have to reach, you would have to allow a person to get a mortgage who was maybe not as able to pay it back as a person was, you know, traditionally. Mm-hmm. So they reached, they went for that extra push in addition to what the banks were doing. So, and Fannie and Freddie, as you know, um, buy mortgages from the lenders. They don't make the mortgages themselves. Right. They're not saying, hey, Gretchen, you've got a 400, a credit score of 400, here's the money. Right. And when they made home ownership as this, you know, nirvana on high, mm-hmm. they there was also a political part of it, which is a, an, a lobbying effort, which was, hey, you know what? The mortgage industry is shutting out people of color, uh, people who can't get a mortgage. And there's a, almost like a racist component to it. Right. How did that play into this? Very big, very big role. And of course, the companies at that point, were, uh, they were privately held. They had shareholders. Um, their, their executives were making enormous amounts of money, even though they were quasi-government agencies. So you had this kind of disconnect between what their real role was supposed to be as Congress intended it, which was to facilitate home ownership, but not to make it riskier. Mm-hmm. And what they were actually doing, which was really based on uh, growing their earnings. And the executives, of course, when the earnings would rise, would get enormous packages based on the performance of the companies. So it was a conflict, an inherent conflict within the operations of these companies. This is Better Off with Jill Schlesinger. We'll get back to our interview with Gretchen Morganson in just a minute. But, you know, when I think back 10 years, it is amazing to consider how everybody was so freaked out. Of course, the world felt like it was falling apart. And if you were an investor at that time, you probably can recall those gut-wrenching days And I think that after the financial crisis, a lot of people said, hey, why didn't my guy, meaning their brokers, get me out of this stuff? Why didn't they do something? And the answer is that you probably did not really understand the way that your money was being managed. And that is one of the things that I think is so important about our sponsor, Betterment. Betterment is the smart way to manage your money. It is the investing tool for those who refuse to settle for average investing. Unlimited expert advice designed to help you make smart financial decisions. Of course, all investing involves risk. But better off listeners, you can get up to one year managed free. For more information, visit Betterment.com slash better off. That's Betterment.com slash better off. Betterment outsmart average. And now back to our interview with Gretchen Morganson. 
you talk about uh, who's the guy in the '90s? Johnson? Jim that, Johnson. You yes. really don't like him. You I, don't you know, like him. I don't know. Like, I like don't... dislike, like no. Uh, you know, this was a guy who was a real political animal, and he would not let anybody anybody raise a question about whether what they were doing was the right thing. He would brook none of that, and he made a fortune a fortune, and laying the groundwork for what then ultimately became a real disaster for the companies. So talk about what happened when the government had, like at the, at the seismic moment, what was, what was the recognition among the administration officials at the time about Fannie? That the company had been allowed to be too aggressive, um, take too much risk, because it was essentially underwritten by the government. It's not a government entity. No. But it has a it's halo. Backed. It's backed by the right. supposedly the full faith of Correct. the U.S. government. It's what backed. does that mean? Well, that means that if there's a default, if there's a loss, that the government steps in and covers it. And that is, in fact, what happened. So the companies were taking far too many risks. They also were building up their balance sheets, owning the mortgages when they really were supposed to have simply been packaging them um, and, you know, selling those securities. So it was a combination of things, but it was essentially they had taken on too much risk, risky mortgages, and they were held on the balance sheet instead of packaging and being sold to investors. So this was um, really kind of the moment when we understood that the government was on the hook for for this. Now, Nowadays, they're completely different. They can't lobby. Mm -hmm. uh, they are very profitable. Mm -hmm. They don't hold mortgages on their balance sheets anymore. Uh, so they have completely been reined back into where they're... Uh, where Congress really wanted them to be all along. It was just they got out of control. Is there a case to be made that, the, that Fannie should have been dismantled? Or... Is Fanny what it should be, yes. and it works well? Yes, under I would my say friend that. Tim Myopoulos. I would say that. <laughs> you know, this is a. These are entities that facilitate eighty, ninety percent of the mortgage market. So if you take them away, you're going to have an enormous a cost increase in getting a mortgage, and you're just not going to have liquidity in that market, and you need it. It's a five and a half trillion dollar market, so you don't want to take away. But they're not taking risks like they used to, and so the losses are just not there. So. I would say yes. Okay, it's so it's, we've got it. We've got it right sized. Now let's go to the other side. Let's go to the um, investment banks. What has has occurred since the financial crisis? Ten years later, is that these bank holding companies, these systemically important financial institutions, have to have a lot more money on their balance sheets? Should I feel protected about that? Is there some crisis looming that I should be freaked out about? And you've seen it, and you should tell us all right now. <laughs> Um, this is a question I get a lot, Jill. Um, and I would say that the banks are very pretty well capitalized. Um, you don't, I think, have to worry about a systemic risk because of what they have on their books. Um, they, too, have become much more conservative about loans. Now, that doesn't mean that consumers aren't taking you know, um, on a lot of debt. They are. You've got a trillion four in student loan debt. You've got credit card debt. You've got car um, loan debt. So consumers are levering up. Corporations have been levering up because of the low interest rates. So we do have an expanded debt scenario. I don't see anything as seismic as the mortgage crisis coming. But, you know, if there were problems, I would say that they will come in the 
shadow banking system, yeah, which so what's is that? the non-bank like um, what? financial institutions, like BlackRock, for instance, which manages what, $6 trillion in assets. That's not a systemically important financial institution, by the way. Um, So huge, enormous financial companies that are very, very big in a lot of different markets. Um, You know, that's what shadow banking is. And the degree to which they're less regulated or not quite as closely scrutinized, um, that could be problematic. But don't forget, Jill, the regulators completely missed this thing. So relying Some, on regulators. There were a couple who were seemed right. to be like no. poor Brooksley born. Yes. Like just right. thrown under the bus. Typical. A woman. Yeah, right. Okay. Mm-hmm. And the FDIC under Sheila Bear was very trying very hard to put new rules in for mortgages and the Fed stonewalled her and the OCC stonewalled her. So, you know, there were some, right, but many, many regulators did not see this coming. And so you can't rely on them. But I do think that the banks currently are pretty well capitalized. They have been forced to build up their balance sheets and the cushion that they have. So I don't see it coming from there. But I don't have a crystal ball. So don't quote me on that or don't rely on that 100%. Don't don't, uh, change the portfolio allocation based on what Gretchen is saying. I, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about some of the churn that we see of uh, regulators, academics, business people, right? There were very close ties, say, like Hank Paulson is the Treasury Secretary, and he is essentially begging on his knee to Nancy Pelosi and Congress folks to please bail out these lovely people at Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley and Citi. And, and so what do you think was at play with the sort of the cross relationships? The revolving door? That would be it. Yeah, I wasn't going to try to. I was going to try not to oh, use that term. Oh, I'm such a cliche. You know. I know. But I'm anyway, um, well, it was obviously, I think, a, a central, you know, part of the story. Um, you know, regulators in this country either um, go often go into regulation be- with an eye for getting a job in the private sector afterwards, and there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with that. But it does make you wonder if they are maybe not as aggressive, um, you know, in their regulatory functioning as they would be if they were simply saying, I'm going to be a regulator. This is a job I want to have, and I want to perform at the highest level for the rest of my life or whatever. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so you do see a lot of, you know, interplay between, um, for instance, at the SEC, you know, uh, enforcement, uh, young enforcement lawyers then go to the white collar defense bar and they know the score, they know the people, they know the, you know, way that things work. And so that's a, that's a valuable history to have Mm -hmm. or legacy to have. So there is a lot of revolving door going on. You know, it's funny when you think about Hank Paulson, I mean, he really must've just thought that he was going to go to Washington and relax for the next two years or whatever it was. And, you know, it was really pretty amazing how everything just went kerflui. And he didn't have a clue how to deal with it. Mm-hmm. And, of course, his, you know, um, expo- experience on Wall Street was of some value. But, uh, you know, he he was really like a deer in the headlights. Um, I'll never forget when we had a meeting with him at the New York Times, he came to meet with reporters to talk about how they were going to solve the problem of the commercial paper market freezing in 2007. And it was really interesting because he was unable to articulate how this was going to really help. 
And I went back down to my desk and I called my husband. I said, honey, we are really going to be in a world of hurt because there's nobody who gets what's going on. Holy smokes, really? See, the thing that I was always, I guess that maybe I took false comfort in was I I thought to myself in real time. So I was still managing money at that point. Uh So I guess that what I thought was, well, he's a Goldman guy. At least he understands how the world is interconnected and he understands how these mechanisms work. And what you're saying is something very different. I was also very struck by the fact that, you know, in there, all of them tell their own story, right? right? Geithner wrote a book. Did Paulson write a book? I don't know if he did write a book, but he's been interviewed. Mm-hmm. Um, and Bernanke's written a book. And it, it's this, you know, like, we came in and we rescued everything. Right. Right. But they really screwed homeowners. Yes. And I'm not saying the crazy house flippers, they should have lost. Yeah, the right, regular right. people who were underwater, the, the two administrations... The outgoing Bush, the incoming Obama, they just really let the people hang out to dry. Completely agree. So the reaction, the response to Wall Street was, oh, my gosh, let's fix this. Hurry, hurry. We have to throw trillions of dollars at this problem. The response to Main Street was pound sand. Yeah, like harp. Remember harp? Harp versions 1, 2, 7, 8, 12, and no one could get any help. It was insane. I'll never forget the New York Times. We were trying to get numbers from the Treasury about HAMP or HARP, one of those things. And we were just having a devil of a time getting any response from them about how many mortgages had been saved. Okay, And it turned out was because there were none. And it was a completely inefficient or ineffectual mechanism. And so, but they just wouldn't tell us. And so after a while, we just figured, okay, this is really now becoming a story that we can't get this simple data out of Mm -hmm. this entity. But anyway, so yeah, the response to Main Street was I think it was wrong. It was it was meaningless. It was it ended up helping very few people. Even the settlements, the huge billion dollar settlements with the banks, ended up helping very few homeowners. Yeah. Very few. And I think, Jill, that that helped lay the groundwork for the um, appeal that Donald Trump had in 2016 when he would talk about the game being rigged. Yeah, I agree with you. I think that that's the that's they sowed the seeds of that discontent that like, wow, fat cat bankers can get bailed out. The other part of it was even at that point where if you really, truly believe and I'm sure that Bernanke did believe this, that uh, if we if the system goes under, the system goes under Mm -hmm. and that's bad for everyone. Why didn't they strike more significant deals with the banks and say, you know what, Jamie Dimon, I'm calling BS on you not needing it. That's baloney because if everyone else fails, you're going down. Right. But the deals that they struck were actually pretty tame relative to like what happened. There was no upside for the government even. No. There A, there were no strings attached. Like Oh, we so get paid say, interest. Right. But they would say, you know, how about saying, okay, we're gonna give you this money, but you have to make X number of loans to struggling homeowners or you have to Forgive X number of mortgages for people who are underwater. None of that. And even the interest rate that we earned, the taxpayer earned on that, was was way below what it would should have been had we charged a market rate of interest. Yeah, at distressed the time. debt. Right. 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 Um, are there any banks that that you think are um, today still teetering on insolvency, or is everybody still is everyone okay? 
Um, I think that in this country, the capital requirements have really pretty much um, made everybody, you know, money good. So mm-hmm. I'm not too worried. I mean, I think there are some, you know, European banks that really haven't dealt with the problems. But I say in this country, I think you're pretty much on solid ground. Ten years later, what did you get wrong the first pass? What did you think? What did you not quite grasp in the moment? I guess I didn't maybe understand how big and far-reaching this was and how many tentacles, where the tentacles lay, um, and the interconnectedness of it all, you know, really, I guess, surprised me. I too am surprised, you know, I I really I guess my the thing that I really got wrong was that I thought that a crisis of this size and magnitude would result in people going to jail. Ah. Boy did I get that wrong. So, who went to jail? Uh fabulous Fab Touré of Goldman Sachs. He was indicted. I don't think he went he? to jail. I'm not sure if he went to jail, but there was one guy who went to jail who was um what was his name? He was the CEO of a mortgage lender, but it was, you know, not a household name. Um Mozilla from Countrywide. He did not go to jail, no. Frank Rains? No. no. And they they lied about what they were doing essentially, right? Well, Countrywide, here you have a guy who was, you know, selling stock in Countrywide. He, you know, had these programs like a lot of executives do where they automatically sell every quarter or whatever. He was selling while he was writing emails to his lieutenants saying, these are toxic loans. We're going to get in trouble selling these loans. Or should we be doing these loans? It's poison. These were actual emails that the SEC came up with when they tried to get him on insider trading. He sold $500 million worth of stock while he was writing emails about how toxic the company's loans were. Now, I don't know why that guy is walking around. Mm. So in this SNL crisis of the late 80s, early 90s, there were hundreds of people went to jail for a much smaller problem that did not have an impact of the size of this crisis. So it can be done. It was done. And it sent a message to people. This time around, nobody went to jail except for this one person at this mortgage lender of any high level. And the message is clear. Do it again next time and do it in bigger size. Hmm. I always wondered if the crisis had occurred. Well, let's just say let's let's put the clock back Uh, before all of these companies became publicly traded. The partnership of the firm would have assumed the risk. And I always wondered whether this could ever have even occurred if Goldman Sachs were still a partnership, if Morgan Stanley were a partnership, because then the partners would look at their own they would be on the hooks and say, right. well, wait a minute. We're not doing this. This is crazy. That's right. It so, was their money on the hook. They were going to be a lot more careful. If it's the shareholders' money on the hook, well, yeah, somebody else's problem. Yeah. I don't think the next contagion is going to be in the U.S. I think it's going to be, a, you know, sort of a, a foreign issue. But since the world is still so interconnected and levered that I feel like, you know, whether it's China or whether there is some meltdown some other place that because everyone's in on it, it may not be a cataclysmic crisis that ripples out, but everything is amplified now simply because of the interconnectedness. I'm not really worried because I feel like, yeah, we, we lived through it once. I guess we'll live through it again, but I don't want anyone to get hurt. Yeah, no, that was not a fun time, that as, was you, as not, you remember. Gretchen, we started the interview and I asked you what was your best financial or career decision. You said to work hard. What was your worst? Um, worst financial decision? 
Well, worst decision. I mean, they're really kind of narrow decisions. I mean, it's it. Luckily, I never had a career ender <laughs> decision. Right. 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 Exactly. <laughs> I mean, you know, it was, uh, you know, picking a job choice. You know, moving to one company and then moving back to the. You know, I mean, it was. I. I don't. I don't have a lot on my you know, plate that I rue and that I look back and say, if only I hadn't done that. And I am so fortunate. It's not because I'm brilliant or smart. It's just because I'm lucky and I appreciate that every day. Well, that's great. I've been asking questions because we're now in the time of year where kids are heading back to school. So what are the three classes that every college student should take if they want to come out and be as smart as Gretchen? Wow. Well, English. Okay, you have to be able to know how to communicate. Communications, I mean, people can make fun of English majors all day long, but they know how to communicate. They know how to tell a story. They know how to translate into English. English, you know, whatever freshman English, um, my freshman English teacher taught me how to write a sentence, and I love that guy to this day. And, and his name is? And his, oh my gosh, his name is David Wee. And when I won a Pulitzer Prize, which was so, so amazing, I wrote him a card and I said, I could not have done it without you. So, you know, okay, English. Um, Anything that expands your mind. I mean, I think that that sad thing about kids uh, going to college today is that they're so determined. They're so, it's so important because of the student debt crisis to get a job at the end, that they're narrowing the field. I want to get a degree in X. And so I'm not going to sample all these other different Mm -hmm. things that I can sample, like philosophy or religion or, you know, art um, history, social work or history. Exactly. You know, I so I would say, try, you know, a lot of different things. Don't just go for what's going to get you to the next level or what's going to get you that job, because this is your moment in college when you have the opportunity to sample so many different things. And you really should not curtail that. Gretchen Morganson, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Anytime, Jill. This was fun. Thank you so much to Gretchen Morganson. We'll put a link up to her stuff. Very interesting. Don't forget that we have new episodes of Better Off every single Tuesday and Thursday. If you would like to get on the air with us, just send us an email. It's very easy to do. Send us a note. AskJill at BetterOffPodcast.com. That's AskJill at BetterOffPodcast.com. Our music is composed by Joel Goodman. Mark Talercio is our executive producer. We're distributed by Cadence 13, and we're sponsored by Betterment. See you next week.